Yes, we'll finish this discussion, continue the discussion, <clears throat> understanding the nature of our predicament as human beings and with our intention to be right in the middle, then in a way it gives us the privilege to name dukkha, name the experience of suffering, because we might initially have been taught that it's a mistake and that a real good person doesn't suffer, but we see, just from paying attention, the pervasiveness of struggle in our own hearts and around us. And so it just has so much more integrity to just name that. Oh yeah, there's suffering. And the Buddha was very thorough in how he examined life. You know, most of you know, you know, as a metaphor, as a story, a myth, legend, whatever, you know, he had a lot going for him. And, uh, but at some point, having the so-called perfect life, he realized that everything that made up his perfect life was, you know, like we chant, chanted at lunchtime, you know, it has the nature to come and go. All that is beloved, pleasing, will become otherwise. None of it's dependable. So he went off on a search. Okay, does it make sense, given that I, my life, is something that's impermanent, that comes and goes, for me to be banking on things that are also impermanent, that come and go, that aren't fixed, that I can't ultimately count on. And then through the course of his seven years, six years of practice, there's this particular sutta that I like, where the Buddha says, seeking satisfaction or seeking gratification in the world, practitioners, I had pursued my way. That satisfaction, that gratification in the world, I found. Insofar as satisfaction existed in the world, I have well perceived it by wisdom. So, makes sense, like as a human being. What is the ordinary happiness that comes our way? It makes sense that directly or indirectly, through talking with our friends and observing other people, we'd want to know, like, is going to Mexico, like, what's that like? Having a lover, what's that like? You know, having money in the bank, what's that like? Having a little financial security, what's that like? Being healthy, what's that like? Getting a really good massage, what's that like? Whatever you think, the pinnacle, having a really good sit, where the mind gets, the heart gets really quiet, really peaceful. What's that like? It makes sense that we would well perceive these sense experiences, the pleasant side of the equation, with a lot of wisdom, right? To really see what it is. Okay, so that's what that is. Otherwise, it's sort of, we always wonder if I missed out. And we don't have to do everything, you know, 
if you've been to Florida, you know, and you talk to some people who've been to Mexico, you can kind of get, okay, that's what that would be like. It's probably, my, my conception is probably close enough, like, it will be what it will be. You know, there'll be some pleasantness, and there'll be some unpleasantness, and then it will end, and I'll come back. And then the Buddha says, seeking for drawbacks in this world, practitioners, I pursued my way. That misery in the world I found. Insofar as misery exists in the world, I have well perceived it by wisdom. So the things that scare us, the monsters, the pain of loss, the pain of embarrassment, the pain of financial insecurity, the pain of, you know, and and again, we don't have to have every bad thing happen to us, every painful thing happen to us, because we can learn from others, you know, being empathetic. Oh yeah, I think I sense what that would be like enough. So that we're being a good student of life, and we're really noticing, well, what is the experience of satisfaction and gratification? What is the experience of misery that exists? And the Buddha being thorough says, seeking for the release from the world. Now, it's hard to put this in, you know, in language. But basically, like, okay, I know what joy, what satisfaction comes I know I, ha- I know the territory of disappointment and misery, right? I know the experience of being pushed around by, sometimes we say, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows of life, or the eight worldly winds of, do you know this gain and loss, pain and pleasure, fame and disrepute, praise and blame? The Buddha calls these the eight vicissitudes or the eight worldly winds, getting blown around. So the Buddha's, the first two stanzas, the Buddha's basically saying, I've let life be a good teacher. I've learned about the eight worldly winds of pain and pleasure. Right? I've learned what there is to learn. Like, what is the experience of pain? What is the experience of pleasure? And then, this is like, makes us a spiritual seeker. It's like, we become interested at some point, what would it be for this mind, this heart, not to be pushed around by pain and pleasure. Not to be in the realm of seeking the pleasure, seeking to avoid the pain. To be released from that. So, seeking the release, practitioners, I pursued my way. That escape from the world I found insofar as an escape. Now, the world here doesn't mean the world in our kind of literal sense. It's the world of sensuality or the world of being pushed around by sensuality, the world of being pushed around by our likes and our dislikes. That's really what he's talking about here. right? Seeking that escape, I found. Insofar as there is an escape, I have well perceived it by wisdom. If there were no satisfaction to be found in the world, beings would not be attached. If there were no misery to be found in the world, beings would not be disenchanted. 
If there were no release, no escape, beings wouldn't find freedom. And so I really like this kind of as a way of yeah, just these teachings, this approach really comes from a really honest, grounded, well, let's check it out. And that's why the story, you know, I don't know what really the life was like for the person who became the Buddha, but it's a nice story that he had every sense pleasure that he wanted. You know, and it's told, these stories are told in, in great detail about, you know, different palaces for different seasons. And uh, tra- only being around attractive and young people. You know, his father didn't want him to see any of the ugliness or the meanness in life because he didn't want his mind turned towards spiritual practice because he had an astrologer do the young boy's chart when he was little. And he said, well, he's either going to follow in your footsteps and be a great ruler or he's going to be a spiritual seeker. So the father said, well, I'll keep him very distracted with sense pleasures. I'll make it really nice. But somehow the Buddha you know, had a sense to want to dig a little deeper even in his life as a prince or something like that. right? And he came across some of the undeniable facts like aging and death and illness. Somebody wrote a question for me. Would you comment on the shadow aspect of being human? And then another person wrote, in the Q&A, if time, could you talk a bit more about what you have been calling the shadow side of certain mental states? Well, the, the shadow, one of the primary shadows in life is what in Buddhism we would call ignorance, but in our normal kind of experience we call it thinking that I know. Right? That's the shadow, is thinking that we know. And that, uh, you know, whatever that certainty or even arrogant certainty, however it arises for us, but even in negative ways, like thinking that, like being pretty sure that I'm bad, I'm a bad meditator. Right? We can be pretty certain. I had a bad set. This is stupid. What we're doing. So there's all kinds of ways our mind draws a conclusion in a fixed way with a lot of certainty, and that's the shadow of, you know, the mind feeling dependent, being more interested in certainty than, you know, the, like I prefer certainty even if I'm wrong, even if it's just made up, to knowing that I don't know, which is its own kind of certainty. Like it, it has a more stable ground, knowing that I don't know. I'm pretty sure I don't know everything. I'm pretty sure I'm not seeing everything. I'm pretty sure I don't really understand where happiness lies. Because when, I, when I'm grounding in that, then I don't expect dinner to make a big difference. And you might think, well, that's kind of depressing, because dinner's all we got. <laughs> and now, especially because there's rain, you know. It's like, but it's, 
it's actually enlivening and liberating to not be false with ourselves, right? Not to not be operating with the shadow of ignorance or pretending that we know. And it's related to a couple questions people asked about hope. Where does the concept of hope fit in? Or is that uh, just more attachment? Should we abandon hope? And then they mentioned Pamper Children, who I actually have an article right here in this talk where she's talking about hopelessness. Yeah, because hope is, (coughs) in a way, it's not so much that we want to replace hope with hopelessness, although you can use that word as a way of being provocative to sort of expose the hope. Abandoning hope is not the same as being hopeless. Abandoning hope means we don't, we don't imagine that somebody's going to be saved or somebody's out there to save us. We don't, we don't construct anything, anything that we construct, we don't imagine it's more than something we constructed in our mind. It's like, in any moment, like just take a moment now, we actually have to construct a monster to feel unsafe or to feel in need of hope. You know, when we just sort of settle into a moment, an unconstructed moment, do we need hope? We have to have a thought like, but then what happens next? I mean, this is fine for a moment. But I, right? So we have to have this idea that, like, let's say you're feeling like for just one moment, for just two seconds, let's say, that's more than one moment, but just for a few moments, you know, that it's just okay to be. I don't need icing on the cake. I don't need something in the future, salvation or whatever. I'm okay to just, for two seconds, to just completely allow the conditions to be. And you'll see that, like for two seconds or so, the heart's willing to be content. The heart's willing to rest with some, the peace of not needing things to be different. Do you sense that? But then the mind can construct a thought, this is that shadow, where we give more credence to the constructed thought than to our actual experience. Yeah, but this piece isn't going to last forever. Someday I have to go home. It's, you know, I still have a to-do list. How can it be peaceful? How can that peace be trustworthy? that release, that ease, whatever you experience, when you just let, you just drop in and just let the moment be. Right? So it's always the construction of a monster, whatever that is, like your to-do list, then you need hope. So hopeless or abandoning hope doesn't mean we're screwed. Because that's just another fixation of the mind, right? The mind is clinging to the idea, the certainty that I'm screwed. And that's 
being caught in the dualities, which is related to that middle way we talked about yesterday afternoon. It's not about the world. Like I mentioned in one of the small groups, this idea, this unquestioned idea, this is another example of the shadow, where we have this unquestioned belief, constructed belief, that the world is supposed to provide happiness to me. The world of experience is supposed to make me happy. And we project that on our partners and on our food and on our beds and on our experiences that the whole point of holy wisdom meditate or retreat center and Madison Insight and Mark Nunberg coming in to teach the retreat is to deliver something. And if you don't, I'll be disappointed. I'll have rights to be disappointed. And the same thing with our cars and our homes and our friends and our activities. So we have this, but when we say it out loud, so we have the world, and we're saying basically that the world, which is this this mysterious collection of causes and conditions, is actually here to make me happy. I mean, talk about a self-centered point of view. The world is neither here to make us miserable, which is the other half of the time we think, you know, it's really out to get me, nature is out to get me. Like when we find out we're sick or have a medical crisis or our partner doesn't want to be a partner anymore. And then we think, okay, you know, it's everybody's out to get me, life, the world, or and then we have a sunny day and somebody smiles at us and there's some possibilities. And then we think, oh no, no, this is a Garden of Eden. It's really a paradise for me. Somehow delivered for, to make me happy. But you see, one way or another we personalize it. So abandoning hope is really getting interested in dukkha. Because the The turning point in terms of examining the reality of suffering is are we examining it from a personal point of view, which is we're still in that dynamic of hope and fear, right? Versus just being actually interested in it. Like, what is it? So, I mean, even intellectually, can we conceive that suffering, both pain and then the resistance to to the ordinary pain in life, which we call suffering, that both the pain and the suffering is just stuff that happens, natural, arises naturally because of habits, you know, and other factors that are all in play. And then some moments there's pain, And in some of the moments where there's pain or difficulty, there's resistance to the pain and difficulty, which compounds the painful experience, and then we call that suffering. And that's how it is sometimes. Is it personal? No, even things that are like feeling humiliated, you you know, whatever, you're talking when food in your mouth and it flies out, and you're with a bunch of people that you want to like you, and you feel really badly. I mean, that's not uncommon. (laughs) But what we have to say is so important that we really can't wait. (laughs) 
This is one of the advantages of our silent retreat. It's less likely to happen. <laughs> and then that embarrassment, you know, it's, it's like, oh yeah, that, it is something that happens sometimes, you know, where something humiliating, embarrassing happens. Right? That just happens sometimes. And then there's that pain of humiliation, embarrassment. And then if we like try to cover it up, it just gets worse, you know, that embarrassment. Because now we've become the person who doesn't want to be seen as doing stupid things. And that's even more embarrassing, right? To kind of show that we're embarrassed, so embarrassed that we're trying to cover up what we just did. Right? It just compounds it. But isn't it possible for us, like at least in hindsight, and maybe eventually in the moment itself, to, to sort of hold that, to see that as, oh well, yeah, that's, that's okay, that's how it is sometimes. It's really great when we're around a wise friend who's going through a difficult time, but they're not adding anything to the experience. I think this is one of the things we learn from some of our pets. You know, when our pets are sick or in a dying process, you know, they don't, they don't resist the pain like humans do as much. I mean, they, they, they're capable of it, for sure. But they're just less likely. They're more likely to have skill at just normalizing, doing the best they can with whatever else them. So, this Pema Chodron has a, this is from her book, um, When Things Fall Apart, which is a great book. The benefits, on the benefits of hopelessness. And she's talking about Buddhism as non-theistic, right? We don't have a savior. At the center of Buddhism isn't the idea of a savior God that's got our back. And she says, she writes, Non-theism is relaxing with the ambiguity and uncertainty of the present moment without reaching for anything to protect ourselves. Non-theism is realizing there is no babysitter that you can count on. The whole of life is like that. That is the truth, and the truth is inconvenient. It's inconvenient given the conditioning of our mind. I mean, it would be one thing if there were something that's got our back. But can we see how the cause of suffering is really tied to the idea that something, someone should have our back, and then it not being there, and having to cover the absence of a babysitter, we have to cover the tracks that there is no babysitter. Like, we have to lie to ourselves over and over. Just like we lie to ourselves that dinner is really going to make a difference. Or whatever. You know, sleeping, have a good night's sleep. But Sunday will come around and maybe it will, you know, for a few moments, if we do have a nice sleep, it will feel good. But it won't really change much. As nice as sense pleasures are, it doesn't resolve the existential problem of expecting life to save us or expecting something to save us. 
And the the Buddha's teaching, it's really about, like, can we come into alignment? Is there actually a liberating freedom and not pretending? Not pretending the world, the world of experience is going to save us or make us happy. She writes at the end of this short section, Giving up hope is encouragement to stick with yourself, not to run away, to return to the bare bones no matter what's going on. If we totally experience hopelessness, giving up all hope of alternatives to the present moment, we can have a joyful relationship with our lives, an honest, direct relationship that no longer ignores the reality of impermanence and death. And one way to understand this is, you know, when we're not uh, deluded with ideas of hope and and the monsters, because there's always like in the duality of hope, there's fear, right? You don't get one without the other. Like if I really want something to happen, I'm naturally really afraid of it not happening whatever not that is, that's scary. Because I really see that as being important, saving me, making me happy. Right? I want this person to love me. Them rejecting me is a monster. One of the first books I read back in the early 80s, some of you maybe have read it, it's quite famous, by Pema Chodron's teacher, Trungpa Rinpoche, a very controversial Buddhist teacher, Tibetan teacher, um, controversial in not such a good way, but but seemingly brilliant and influential nonetheless. But he wrote a book, um, Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism. And there's a section near the end of the book where he's talking about Milarepa, who was uh, sort of the patron saint of Tibetan Buddhism, really famous saint from long ago, hundreds of years ago, maybe 1300s or something like that. And uh, his practice was humming along. And, you know, Tibetan Buddhism, because the very shamanistic <clears throat> culture when Buddhism came up into Tibet from northern India, so Tibetan Buddhism is this sort of really ornate, interesting blend of, of shamanism and Buddhism, and also Hinduism, which has, you know, got this very complex... Um, expression of the heart-mind in terms of this array of deities kind of expressing just the nature of the mind. And so that's the case in Tibetan Buddhism as well. So his practice is humming along and one of the fruits of a practice humming along is these aspects of the mind, the kinis, the feminine wisdom aspects begin to express themselves. These sort of energies dancing there basically reflecting back to himself his wisdom, what he's coming to understand. And what did they chant to him, these kind of feminine wisdom aspects? They chanted, On the steep slope of hope and fear, the demons lie awaiting. On the steep slope of fear and hope, the demons lie awaiting. So when we're in the world of fear and hope, we're setting ourselves up. 
And when we have a more grounded, honest, pragmatic, open, oh yeah. So we're not, because the thinking mind, the imagining mind, well, it's very good at thinking and imagining. And then we get confused by our own mental constructions, our own imagination. But it's just that, it's just a mental construction. So we're really grounding, and we get to this place in moments, and then for more and more moments of where nothing can surprise us. And it's, there's real power, real safety, and that place of integration where nothing can surprise us. We're so integrating with the reality of change, with the reality of ambiguity and uncertainty and the dance of life, that there's no part of the dance that would be surprising. I mean, it's really interesting, like, the difference in concentration. Like, some people, or sometimes when I'm concentrated, my mind is dependent on the object of meditation. So if somebody near me sneezes, it's like shocking. Because I was really, my mind state, the the collectedness of the mind, was really dependent on that particular object being known, that particular object being known. right? And then the sound of the sneeze comes in, and the attention goes there. And it sort of rocks the world of the meditator. Now other times, and this is a really good sign, where you're sitting and something unexpected happens, like a sneeze or a cough, or somebody drops their water bottle or something like that, and there's no reverberation, because in the moment before the sound, there was no part of the mind not expecting that sound to happen. It's a little funny to say it that way, but do you know what I mean? It's like, when we're with something, We may not see it, but part of the mind thinks this is not going to change. That this, like the safety I have being with this experience, I can count on. But when the samadhi is based more on wisdom than on samatha, the concentration, the tranquility side of the practice, then that that wisdom knows that everything's in motion, that anything can happen any time. So it's not surprised when something happens because it's living with the understanding. It's not living with the understanding that, no, it's just this. Yeah, it's just this and anything can happen any time. Things are in motion. Nothing is fixed. So part of wisdom concentration, like the stability that comes with wisdom, the concentration or the stability of awareness that comes with wisdom, is this not being surprised? Because the mind isn't fixed on anything. The ground that the mind has is the ground of not grasping. That's its ground. It's having made peace with non-grasping, not holding or fixing on anything, You see, that's a very stable place. So part of what we're looking at with the teachings on um, 
on the Four Noble Truths and understanding suffering, it's like we're seeing like the cause of suffering, right? Like when we do the first three insights, oh yeah, there is suffering, let's be honest. The heart feels burdened, the heart feels heavy, the heart feels closed, the heart feels pushed around, beaten up. It's relevant. That's irrelevant. I need to get to know. I need to get to know that teacher. I've gotten to know that teacher. And then we shift. We kind of go from first grade to second grade, right? Because once we've really gotten to know the teacher, in any moment, in any sequence of moments, so this is many, many times, where some, we're just kind of floundering, and then we realize, oh, there's a suffering being here, i.e. me, right? And we get, but now, me as a suffering being becomes the object of awareness. I'm not personalizing, I'm not personally the suffering being. In a sense, we're the one who knows there's a suffering being here. It's my teacher. I've really connected, I've really opened, I've really felt whatever is here to see and feel. Ah, because I'm so intimate with suffering, I see the cause. There's a cause. This is a lawful process, this arising of me as a suffering being. There's a cause here. The cause is attachment to desire, personalizing desire. It's not desire, but it's the personalizing of desire, which we call craving, or attachment, you could call it too. Oh, there's attachment. This is the cause. This is what needs to be abandoned. But that doesn't mean you try to abandon it, because that would be more suffering. But that's what we do, until we learn. That doesn't help. So what we eventually do when we get to that place where we've made peace with suffering, we really let it be our teacher, we've let it in, we let it teach us, oh yeah, this is what suffering is. We'll see, oh yeah, and this is what it depends on. Suffering depends on attachment to desire, identifying with the desire, taking desire personally. Being a human being means we have desire. There's no way to be alive without desire. Desire, like I like to call it life energy, because it's so pervasive. I mean, there's just always desire to move your body, to swallow, to blink, you know, to connect with other people, to be liked, to feel like you can contribute. I mean, there's just like endless, and all of those desires are just active and moving and it's really complex and we've learned this really bad habit which is to imagine that desire to kind of give agency to desire to give self or to see desire as the activity of a permanent me that's a construction but it's a very compelling construction in Buddhism, we call that self-view. And attachment comes out of self-view, self-centered view. Identifying with desire comes out of that. So the reason why we're not trying to get rid of the attachment to desire is because that could only come out of self-view. I don't want to be attached to desire anymore because it hurts, so I'm going to stop being attached. We're still right back in self-view. 
But here's what we can do. This is what wisdom does. It sees the cause, attachment to desire. It sees that it should be abandoned, and it's patient there. This is where there's endless patience required in practice, where we see how the mind is caught, we see how it's the cause for suffering, and we keep seeing, like, honey, this is not helping. This isn't helping. That's a compassionate thing to do. And when we do that with enough integrity, enough patience, we'll notice the moment, because we're right there, awareness is right there, so awareness will see the moment when attachment ceases. And that's, those are the three insights here in the second noble truth. There is a cause. The cause is attachment to desire. It should be abandoned. That's the second insight. Like we're seeing that the attachment to desire is unskillful. It's causing stress. We see it with endless patience. And then we see, oh, attachment has ceased. Because the supporting cause what allows there to be attachment to desire is the presumption that it's necessary or skillful or so by just hitting that same note like this isn't helping this should be abandoned this is the cause for suffering to just keep seeing that it undermines the cause for the attachment which is we, somehow there seems to be somebody who gets something from being attached. Attachment happens because wisdom isn't seeing it clearly. It's not that there's somebody who's bad, right? That would be self-view. It's just the lack of clarity around suffering and its causes. And then the more we see that third insight, there's attachment, there's attachment, there's attachment, a little stress, there's attachment, a little stress, heaviness, attachment, and then it's gone. It really changes then, right? Because up until we start to see that moment, spiritual practice seems like a very personal burden. Like, God, I wish I didn't have to do it. I wish I could just party. But somebody, it was a Peggy, was saying, you know, realizing that party's not partying isn't fun anymore. <laughs> Whatever that partying means. Like for some of us, partying means watching a BBC mystery and eating popcorn. <laughs> and having sparkling water. <laughs> but, you know, to each their own. But, you know, it's not that we don't do that, but less and less do we, do we do that expecting it to be impactful in any kind of lasting way. It still may be the thing we're going to do that evening, but we don't expect it to lead to happiness. Because more and more we're interested in that happiness that happens when the mind is seen without grasping, without attachment. That starts to become more and more interesting. And it's like a real reorientation from expecting sense experience to make us happy or expecting getting away from life. Like we have all kinds of, a lot of religions are based on this, like all kinds of ideas like, get me the hell out of here, someplace perfect. And then I'll be happy. 
so we're we're okay sort of dealing with this because we have some idea that I'm going to end up in a perfect place where there won't be happiness or won't be unhappiness. And Buddhism is this sort of like, I can't, like, how can I trust that? You know, this is what I know. Let me live my life based on what I can directly see and experience. It's really pragmatic in that way. And we investigate suffering. We kind of take it into our own hands. Okay, there's suffering. Let me see what I can learn. Ah, there's a cause for suffering. Attachment to desire. Oh, interesting. When patient enough, interested enough, that attachment ceases and a whole other world opens up that we call realizing the mind free of grasping. Right. So that's the third noble truth is realizing the mind free of grasping, realizing this should be fully taken in. It has been fully taken in. So maturing that insight, like really getting familiar with the heart that has no grasping. And we get tastes of this when we're in a really peaceful meditative state. Because in a temporary way, because of the seclusion, there isn't much greed or craving operating in the mind when we're in that. And the reason is the, the mind state is very pleasure, pleasant. We get this even sitting on a beach, if that's your thing, you know, where you're really comfortable and the conditions are very pleasant. You get a little sense of contentment there until you wonder about, like, is that beach better than this beach? Or whether I should reserve my spot for next year now before somebody else gets it. You know, there's all kinds of ways to ruin pleasant experiences. Just like all of us, most of us have noticed where we are dropping into a more peaceful place and then liking kicks in, greed. Like, oh, I don't want to forget this place. Right? And we ruin it. Because the greed is not the cause for dropping into that peaceful place. It was the relative absence of greed that was allowing the mind, the heart, to drop into that peaceful place. So how many of us have interrupted a very natural dropping in to a peaceful place by wanting it to last, wanting to own it, wanting to always be able to get back to it? And then, of course, we're in a hell realm in a matter of a second or two. And then just to finish up, so there are insights all along the way, insights getting to know dukkha. In the First Noble Truth, there is dukkha. It's relevant. It's my teacher. It should be understood. It has been understood. Second Noble Truth, there is a cause, right? Attachment to desire. This cause should be abandoned. So wisdom is saying this isn't helping. This is unskillful. It should be abandoned. It's just seeing that with great patience. And then, oh, it has been abandoned. Ah. And then this, this mind, this heart free of grasping should be fully realized. Right? This is, in a sense, what the heart has been seeking intuitively. This release. It should be realized. It has been realized. So there is freedom. It should be fully realized. It has been realized. And then the last three insights, there's a way to live my life 
that leads in this direction, this way of living, this way of practicing, right, should be developed. It has been developed. So this last insight is when we've had some deeper tastes of release, then the very natural question, this is just the natural process, right? What, how do I need to live, how do I need to practice to support that way of being? Right? Oh, I should be mindful. <laughs> right? I should be mindful in my relationships, that's sila. I should be mindful you know, in terms of taking care of my own mind, that's samadhi. And I should be mindful about wise view. Like, what is the underlying nature? And, and to live in alignment with what life teaches instead of what I think. So we should think in alignment with the way it is, not try to make the way it is fit the way we think. And that's, you know, that's our predicament now. So let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. It's really nice. We don't have to hold on. For one, the talks are recorded. Guided meditations are recorded too. But also, we just trust that some of the information lands is related to what our heart already knows. And the rest just will be on some shelf somewhere. Thanks for listening, everyone.